Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast for the week of January the 18th, 2021. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. And today I'm very happy to welcome as my guest, Lauren McGuire, who is an investigative reporter for the Dallas Morning News. Uh, Lauren's written extensively about Texas government and politics for the news. And before that, the Houston Chronicle uh, has been a guest on the podcast before in earlier incarnations uh, and always very generous with her time with us, including I was digging out, uh, Lauren, a, a panel, I think, with you and Ty Love and a couple other folks from like three or four years ago, I think. But welcome. Oh, well, thanks. Uh, I was trying to think of the last time I was actually on the show, and it just feels like another world. So, <laughs> Yeah, we were actually uh, all together in the studio, um, right. which you know, we, we've not done yet in this incarnation of the podcast. But be that as it may, uh, we've gotten you here and much appreciated. I, I want to start by talking about a story that you wrote right before the holiday weekend that seems to me to have a lot of interesting implications that I, I'm not seeing picked up on the ether now. It picked up on in in the ether, or the Twitterverse, or whatever we want to think about. Even though I think it it was pretty interesting. And uh, on Friday, you published a story in the morning news about it coming to light that Mark Escott, uh, the interim medical director for Austin Public Health, had pushed for lawmakers in the legislature to receive vaccinations through an Austin area provider through Ascension. So I, it seems to me this is very, very pregnant with implications. Um, so why don't you what, tell us about the facts of that story so we can talk about it a little bit. Sure. Uh, so I heard earlier in the week that uh, Dr. Escott, like you mentioned, had created this back channel vaccination program through Ascension Seton, um, a local hospital system here in Austin. And uh, you know, the, the people that are eligible to receive vaccines under state guidelines right now, it's a pretty limited group, um, you know, healthcare workers, nursing home residents, people who are over 65, 65 or older, that kind of thing. And Dr. Escott feels very strongly that all lawmakers should be vaccinated regardless of whether they fall into any of those categories because they're coming to Austin, which is his backyard. And you know, some of them aren't wearing masks. Some of them haven't been vaccinated. They're sitting for hours on end next to each other in inside and small rooms. And he said, you know, he was really concerned that the legislative session was going to be a super spreader event for not just Austin, but the region, which he feels responsible for. So he didn't get um, he didn't get the state to include lawmakers as a special uh, eligible group. So he said he just decided to kind of do it on, do it on his own, um, and set up this, this separate channel. But, you know, until I published a story, there were even lawmakers and, you know, uh, elected officials who are not aware that it was being done. 
So, 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 so say a little more about that based on at least what you could find out. I mean, how did he convey this and you know, what, what's going on that, that so many people didn't know? Uh, so I didn't get a lot of answers to how this was communicated to lawmakers. It sounds like it kind of happened through the grapevine, more or less. Um, after Dr. Escott didn't get the state to kind of sign on to vaccinating lawmakers, he had already talked with the Texas House Democratic Caucus about it, uh, at least their staff. And the news had kind of trickled out to lawmakers that he had, um, that he had wanted to do this through those communications. So some folks, it seems like, signed up for it just because they got they heard about it by a word of mouth. Um, and, you know, that news was shared with members of, you know, now Speaker Dade Phelan's staff. I know some senators got vaccinated. So some, the news trickled its way from the House chamber to the Senate chamber. But in terms of official communications, Ascension Satan will not tell me whether they sent out a notice or communicated in any broad way with lawmakers. Um, and I know that at least one lawmaker over on the House side was informing his colleagues that they could go get this done kind of like an ad, on an ad hoc basis as well. But it sounds like mostly word of mouth unless Ascension Seton was doing something they haven't told me about yet, which is possible. So, so what's your sense of, of what kind of uptake they got? Uh, you know, the story suggested that some people had declined. Some legislators had declined, right? That's right. Um, I, I talked to at least, uh, I talked to three lawmakers who declined the offer. All were House Democrats um, on the younger side. And they declined because they said, you know, we're not eligible. And even if we are at a higher risk being in the House chamber with our colleagues, we just don't feel right doing this. What, you know, skipping the line in front of more vulnerable people. Um, Dr. Escott thinks he said he knows of at least 10 to 15 people, or was it five to 10 people? I'm forgetting my, num my own numbers now. A small number of legislators that he is aware of who have taken advantage of his offer. But he said, you know, Ascension Seton is likely vaccinating others um, on his request. He just doesn't know how many. Um, he did say that the people he's aware of who have gotten vaccinated through this channel, some are eligible currently under state guidelines, some are not. And there are Democrats and Republicans and members of both the House and the Senate, he said. So this isn't just, uh, you know, a... a something that was limited to one chamber or the other or to one party or the other. Well, and there was a twist on that. I mean, there, you know, there are many twists on this, but as you were reporting this, and I, I, I think the reporting was you, you were able to include this, but I'm not sure if it was in an update. As you were putting the story together, it was announced that at least one member who had been in attendance, uh, you know, the first couple of days of the legislature, state rep Joe Desotel had actually tested positive. That's right. And uh, the T uh, Texas Tribune broke that news um, as I was finishing my reporting. So it was kind of, you know, case in point for Dr. Escott's argument that this thing could run rampant um, throughout the halls of the legislature if we don't do something about it. Funny enough, I, um, I, I covered the first day, opening day of the, of the legislative session, and I probably only came face to face with maybe four or five lawmakers. And one of them happened to be 
Deschatel. So now I'm in self <laughs> I'm in self isolation and have been um, since he announced, uh, you know, that he he tested positive, and I'm awaiting my second and third COVID test results before I I go back out into the world in any way. But you know, it's just it's a it's case in point that you know if you do the kind of spider charts off of one person, especially someone like a lawmaker, it it can really it really accelerates at a quick, very quick pace. Well, it does raise other questions. Do you, do you know from based on the reporting that you've done and, and I was uh, talking to Dr. Escott, did, did they can, does this apply to, uh, to legislative staff? Was that a consideration? Definitely. Yeah. Um, Dr. Escott said, ideally, if he had his way, he would convince the state to vaccinate everyone in the Capitol building. Um, all staff, support staff, administrative staff, you know, uh, janitorial staff. He thinks it's, he thinks it's pretty imperative that if, if these folks have a constitutional duty to show up that, you know, the state covers them with vaccines in terms of who has been vaccinated through Dr. Escott's kind of back channel. He said he, he made it clear to the folks that reached out to him that he wanted certain key staff to also fill feel that they could take him up on his offer. I'm not sure whether any staffers actually have been vaccinated through that process, but he said, you know, in a very limited way, if there's, you know, your chief of staff or, or something like that, then he wants those individuals to be, to be vaccinated too through his process. But, you know, it's funny, I got a call from a lawmaker over the weekend who was saying, who does not think that Dr. Ascot is, is going about this in the right way because it's an unofficial back channel that, you know, it seems to put lawmakers as a group on a pedestal. And he said, well, this particular lawmaker said, well, you know, where do you draw the line if if um, the spouses of lawmakers are going to be in Austin and in the Capitol on a regular basis? Are they also going to vaccinate spouses? Are they going to vaccinate children? Are they going to vaccinate, you know, members of the press? So, you know, his argument was, how do you decide who deserves this and when, which is, you know, a discussion we're having statewide now, you know, with such limited supply, how do you make that tough call of who is more deserving of a life-saving vaccine? Yeah. I mean, I I think there's, I mean, I'm fascinated by the dynamic at work here. I mean, some legislators are clearly cautious about the possibility of appearing to get preferential treatment. And, and it seems to me worried about the backlash of that. You know, on the other hand, it feels to me like the context of the legislature's passive role in response to the pandemic thus far compared to the executive branch plays, you know, a really, a really significant role here. You were mentioning that Dr. Escott mentioned the legislator's constitutional obligation to, to show up and to, to be there. And it seems to me that, you know, you could go even a step further in saying that, you know, that puts them in in kind of a unique class that is, you know, aside from the, the other various groupings, particularly given the way that government is organized in Texas, that if you've got, you know, a legislature that can only be here for 140, it's supposed to be here for 140 days, you know, certainly could be called into special session, et cetera. Um, but that, you know, they have a role to play being the co-equal branch of government. And from their perspective, 
one could make the argument, put it that way, I think that they should take they should be willing to take a little bit of political backlash and explain the fact that they, and if it comes to their families, their families uh, need to be vaccinated. I mean, look, we're not talking about tens of thousands of vaccines, right? I don't know, to right. my mind. Right. Well, Eddie Rodriguez, who um, was the lawmaker I mentioned before, who had passed along this message that the vaccine is available to some of his colleagues, um, he he went on the record with me. And I appreciate that because I reached out to several other lawmakers who I had heard through the grapevine had received the vaccine. And then no one called me back except for him. And he did make that argument. He did say, although he says he falls into the eligible category, the um, 1B category, that he thinks that there's a continuity of government argument to be made, that we have seen how important it is to have a safe capital building, whether it is national or a state capital, where people can come and go as, as safely as humanly possible in this day and age. And we're not going to have that without widespread vaccinations of lawmakers and their staff. So he, he made that, that argument very strongly and kind of held the burden of that argument on his shoulders along with Dr. Escott. Um, but, you know, then he, he, you know, was directly uh, in contradiction to three of his fellow Democrats in the House who said, you know, this, this, we are not, if we get this, maybe we will get sick, but it won't be as bad as grandma in my, in my district who needs this more. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting issue because you can see, you can, you can easily see everyone's sincere uh, concern. Um, but you're right. There are people that just don't want to, uh, they don't want to talk or go on the record about their involvement. And um, that can be frustrating given that they're public officials. And, and did you get, I mean, did you get much in the way? I mean, you know, not, not without you having to give anything up that you, I would trust you to not do that. Or, you know, I don't need to even say that, but I'm, I'm curious whether you got much on the record response, you've talked mainly about Democrats from Republicans who are in a somewhat different, I mean, subject to some similar dynamics, but also have some other dynamics at play as well. Right. Um, I, I did get a response from both uh, Dade Phelan and uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick's offices about this, and and they were similar responses. They were, you know, we think we should be following the state guidelines. And uh, whoever's eligible under the state guidelines should be the ones who have who have access. It wasn't a direct rebuke of Dr. Escott or lawmakers who chose to kind of circumvent the, the state guidelines, but, you know, a veiled, a veiled statement on that, at least, you know. So right. they did weigh in from those offices. I did not get a response from from Governor Abbott. Well, I, you know, I'll be interested to see, you know, whether this, you know, how this plays out, whether there is more uptake, whether there's, you know, an attempt to just move on or whether there's an attempt to formalize the policy. You have any feel for that? Uh, so I followed up this morning. Um, the, the big actor whose voice is missing in this story is the Department of State Health Services. Um, you know, our health department, our state health department, mm -hmm. they have not responded to any of my emails. They haven't responded to any of my calls. And, you know, 
they are the ones that can change the guidelines to include lawmakers or, you know, continue to exclude them. So the fact that they are are not weighing in is significant. It also, you know, I have questions about whether, you know, can Dr. Escott be penalized for this? I mean, can Ascension Seton face any kind of penalty? I don't know. And I would think that the state health department might be the ones who would be able to provide some answer to that. And yet they, they've kind of gone dark on this whole thing. So um, I guess Dr. Escott made some comment about it this morning at the commissioner's court meeting. I haven't, I haven't been able to watch the video yet, but he addressed it this morning. So I'm, I'm interested to see what he has to say about whether he continues to, he, he plans to continue to offer this. He told me last week that he will, um, unless the state takes, you know, different action. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you raise an interesting point. I mean, this gets us into another very familiar uh, area of conflict and, and well, we'll just call it an area of conflict between state authority and, you know, the ability of, of the localities and local health officials to make their own judgments about what works best in their regions when it comes to fighting the pandemic, among other things. Right. I mean, and, and this, it's, a lot of this is wonky political stuff and who can do what, when, and the state versus the local, like you said, but at the end of the day, it's, people are struggling to get this vaccine um, and people that are eligible for the vaccine are struggling to get it. And so it's a story that affects everybody. Everyone has a feeling on it, whether they, they love the idea, they hate it. Um, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what state officials decide, whether they decide to just go dark and continue not to address this and kind of let it happen behind the scenes. Or if they, you know, actually make a decision and and take a stand on it one way or the other. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I could be misreading you because we're, you know, just uh, over the, you know, recording over the internet. But I, you sound you sound a little bit empathetic to to lawmakers' concerns and you know where where the hot spots might be here for them. Uh, I mean. I'm a reporter, so I don't have any feelings about anything at any time. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think when as as a reporter, it's frustrating when um, when people just aren't responding, and when a state agency who has the power to make these decisions isn't responding, it can be frustrating. So it's like if they if they came out and said we don't think this is a good idea, it would be one thing. But the fact that they're not answering questions about it at all or haven't at this point, I think is more maybe what is it's creating the, uh, the, the emotion in my voice there, (laughs) you know, someone has to, someone has to make a decision on these things. Right. And if the news is out there, then why not say, yes, we will vaccinate them or no, we will continue along the path that we have set. I don't see the point in remaining silence. Uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to make one more judgment call that you can punt on, but I, is, it, is it true? <laughs> well, I, you know, <laughs> is it your impression that that the people that the principals involved thought that this would not become publicly known? I don't know. I really okay. I wish I could make a call on that. Um, I asked Dr. Escott because he was very upfront with me when I. I mean, they put me on the phone with him. He had a, I had a long conversation with him and he was really making his argument very strongly. And he has publicly said a lot that he thinks this should be a by priority, 
But I asked him why, if this was such a priority, why hasn't, why didn't he make it public? Why didn't he like issue a PSA that said, lawmakers, come get your vaccines? And he said, well, you know, we just don't have the supply. We only have one or two extra a day, one or two extra shots a day, you know, in these vials where there might be extra doses. And to me, that just raises more questions. Who gets those two shots? You know, how are they communicating it? What, you know, what's the triage method here? And I didn't get responses to that. So um, it's not clear to me that it's just not clear to me what the strategy was here. I think it might have been that the the news kind of got out there in December after Escott believed he might have had a shot at the state making this an official policy. And then the cat was out of the bag and he thought, well, if people want to get the vaccine, sure, I'm not going to close the door on them, but I'm also not going to make this a public thing. That's my best guess but it can't be sure. Yeah, which is, you know, which is, you know, you can see how it would evolve that in that way, even if it isn't really what one doesn't seem like the best way for that to evolve, but so it goes. Well, I hope you'll continue to report on that and we'll look forward to hearing more about that as you follow the story. Uh, I want to, I want to then switch gears to another story that you did recently with one of your colleagues, I think with Ali Morris and, uh, is on a, a storyline that you've been following for some time, and that's the story you did on the ups and downs of Attorney General uh, Ken Paxton's fundraising efforts at the end of 2020. So tell us what you found yeah. there. Um, so on Friday uh, was the deadline for getting in information about how much money uh, certain elected officials raised at the end of the year. And, um, we were kind of, Allie and I were kind of surprised to see that Ken Paxson, who's been a big fundraiser in past years, really did fell far below his other peers, um, at the end of last year. Um, and we reported that, you know, he brought in, um, trying to see what the totals here were, but something like $300,000. Um, and let me make sure I'm getting that right. Yeah. 305,000. Um, and this is compared to uh, Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick who brought in millions and, you know, the speaker of the Texas house brought in millions. And so the fact that Paxton only brought in that amount was surprising. Um, but what's even more surprising is he was really struggling to fundraise, um, up until November. In November, he actually only raised 75 bucks the, the whole month. And then he, um, you know, he files this uh, challenge to Joe Biden's election win in key battleground states. And all of a sudden, he got a uh, shot in the arm when it came to fundraising. So you could definitely see an influx of cash come in after he filed the Supreme Court challenge. And that seemed to be, that was interesting to us, obviously. Um, but still, it didn't bump him up to to where his his colleagues have been in fundraising. So kind of, you know, it raised a question for us about why uh, has his fundraising dropped off? And, you know, his wife, who's a state senator, out, out fundraised him. So that that's notable, you know, that the attorney general of the state is, is out fundraised by a state senator. So I assume that you're, you know, uh, the original question you asked, having followed Paxton's series of legal and and ethical troubles, that 
you know, your, your initial thought was probably that that was having an impact. Uh, I mean, maybe, I mean, well, we never <laughs> truly know what the, you know, the cause and effect is on these things. Right. Sure. But when there's such, when there's such a, such a drop off, um, at a particular time, it, it, it makes you wonder. And, you know, if, if the listeners aren't aware, you know, October and November, early November, which were terrible fundraising months, um, for Paxton, were when he when the news broke that you know his top employees were accusing him of very serious crimes bribery abuse of office and you know we broke the news at the Dallas Morning News that he was also allegedly having an extramarital affair with a woman who he secured employment with with this individual that he was supposedly abusing his office uh, for to help. So it was a bad month for him news wise and it was a bad month for him fundraising wise. So, you know, you can, you can make your own conclusions there <laughs> if you will, but it was a particularly bad. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we put that info out there. Well, you know, and, 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 you know, I'll, I'll hypothesize since you, so that you won't have to and compromise Thank your you. <laughs> system. But I mean, it I'm does not, also I, seem you that know, I'm not, I will leave that I understand. to Ross Ramsey and you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it it does seem to me that the larger frame here also then when you look at the the uptick in fundraising, another feature, you know, another element in your story was that there was an increase in out-of-state funds, the, the composition of out-of-state funds in his fundraising. And it does seem to me that, you know, this fits in with the characterization that, you know, that the attorney general's efforts to weigh in on the national stage with supporting the president's challenge of the elections of the results of the electoral college or questioning of them. Uh, you know, the fact that the attorney general actually was a speaker at one of the rallies prior to the insurrection at the Capitol. Now he's not at the insurrection, but he was there at the rally and spoke beforehand. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that, that the move towards the national towards national politics was a way of shoring up his position, and I think this all seems to fit that kind of a narrative. And it and it, and it raises a question that you know I, I you know, and again this is speculative, but it's not tied to any of your direct reporting, so maybe you'll be willing to speculate a little bit more. But you know, it does raise the question of what Republican politics and Texas politics look like in the era after Trump's exit from the White House and, and, with Demo and with Democrats now in unitary control of the government. You've, you've covered the legislature for a long time. You've covered it, you know, through presidents of different parties. You know, I'm wondering if you're, if you're thinking about how the national, con the shift in the national context and, and us now all living in a, in a kind of post-Trump world. And I mean that not just that, Trump is gone from the White House, but that Trump has had an impact on politics that we're looking to see. I mean, if you expect that to play out and if you expect that to have an impact on what we see in the next few months. I think, you know, who's in the White House always has an impact, especially in a state like Texas. You know, I, I covered the legislature in Louisiana before here, and they I felt like you know, when I was there, at least they had a little bit more of an independent streak in them. You know, Louisiana and Louisianian poli politicians don't necessarily think they're going to be the next president. Um, but Texas politicians do. 
And so I feel like there's a much more direct link between what's going on the national stage and what's going on on the stage in Texas. And the way that they react to who's in the White House is really shapes the day-to-day, you know, even press releases that make it into your inbox. You know, when it was Obama, it was Ken Paxton is suing every day, the federal government over at X, Y, and Z. Under Trump, you know, he sued so that Trump could to kind of signal to the Trump administration what policies and rules to overturn. And it, it was, you know, an interesting shift in the dynamic. Um, I think what everyone is watching is just how much the Trump years bleed into how the Republican Party continues to comport itself going forward. But in terms of how Greg Abbott and Ken Paxton and, and our Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick act on a daily basis under a new Biden administration, I, I think it's going to be a lot of what we saw under the Obama years. It's, it's going to be more reactionary. It's, there's going, probably going to be more, more lawsuits filed by Texas against the federal government, um, more governmental spending here on that issue because they have a, an adversary now. So, um, and we'll, if, if Trump remains strong in the Republican Party, then they'll, you know, Paxton will probably continue to align himself with that side of the party, but we'll have to see. Yeah. My sense is that, you know, I mean, the, the Trump effect, whether he remains a, a viable active political force, or it's just, you know, the continuing force of example of his example, you know, will continue to fuel a kind of combativeness. And, and, and I think there'll be you know, some, you know, some of the, the genies can't be put back in the bottle in terms of political style. And, you know, Trump has demonstrated that you can, you can violate norms and you can move, you know, what the, the bounds of what are acceptable and, and get away with it. And I think, I mean, you know, ideologically in terms of the politics and the policy, I mean, in many ways, you know, Texas was ahead of Trump as I, you know, as, sure. as I see immigration moving back to the, you know, you can already see signs that immigration is going to move back to the front and center for Republicans. If you, you know, if you look at, you know, CNN and MSNBC right now, what you're seeing are news about, you know, threats to the, to the inauguration. If you switch mm-hmm. it to Fox and One American News, it's about, um, you know, uh, new refugee caravans and, and, the coming socialism. And, and, and I think we're going to see more of that here. Um, and it, you know, it, it all has political value. And as you say, changes went depending on who changes in the white house in the last couple of minutes, I want to go back to one sort of on the ground thing. And, sure. you know, you mentioned that in your reporting, you were likely exposed to somebody who was, who had tested positive for COVID. Tell us, you know, what you expect to be, different in what the adjustments you're going to have to make are as you go about reporting this session in the pandemic and in, you know, the, 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 the new rules and the, you know, the lot, you know, where the rules apply and where they don't apply and regulating access to the legislature, you know, what's that looking like to you? Uh, sure. It's really different. I mean, um, the public access, the press access, it's going to be so different this year. Lawmakers say they want to keep it open as open as possible, but even on day one, it was it was radically changed. Uh, the press was up in in the House and the Senate. The press was up in the um, in the rafters, really, um, cordoned off from legislators. And 
as a reporter, I love covering fashion. It's not everyone's bag, but I really love it. And the whole reason you love it is because you get, you have immediate access to elected officials. You're on the floor with them. You're talking to them. You're just building rapport, building sources. And that's really not going to be possible this year. Like it has in past years. I think the thing that I will, you know, the one thing I probably will editorialize on this call for better or worse is um, I am, I am concerned about committee hearing access for the public and the press. Um, there's, you know, a concern about people sitting in these small hearing rooms. And I understand that. Um, but not allowing press access at all to certain hearings is really concerning to me. Um, and doing it under the guise of, of a public health reason. I, I just, I wish there was a better way to do that. I don't have, I don't have a solution, but I think just wholesale, um, you know, keeping out the public or keeping out the press doesn't seem like the right answer. So one of my jobs in the next, uh, however many days left we have 133 or 132 days, um, is to be keeping an eye on how much access the public has how much access the press has and how that compares to how much access the lobby has and, you know, high money donors and people that can host parties after hours that the rest of us aren't invited to. That's a question and a concern that, that, you know, I think everyone in, in the press corps should be focusing on. Well, that seems like a worthwhile enterprise and we will look forward to that reporting. Uh, Lauren Magai, thanks for being here. It, much appreciated. Uh, good luck on getting your tests back and having them be negative. And we look forward to having you back. Great. Thanks so much for having me and uh, yeah, stay healthy. <laughs> <laughs> we will. Uh, so thanks to Lauren McGuy. Thanks to our staff in Liberal Arts Development Studio in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. I'm Jim Henson, and we'll be back next week with another Second Reading podcast. Uh, be well and have a good week. The Second Reading podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 